This episode of the Memory Palace is brought to you by Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. A quick heads up that this is a Halloween story, and it does feature material related to intimate partner violence. This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. This is a story about a ghost. And the beginning may sound like something spun out of shadows cast by a campfire. But it is true. A handsome drifter arrives in town and sweeps a young woman off her feet. There are documents and contemporary accounts to attest to that. In a photograph, he is handsome. High cheekbones and a strong brow. A spit curl falling down his forehead like Elvis or Superman. You can see it, why Zona Heaster would have fallen for him, married him despite her mother's objections. There was the age gap. She was 23, he was 35. And the speed of it, almost overnight, no one knew this man. He just rolled into their West Virginia town, all charm and promises. And suddenly they're getting married? That's not the way things are done. But she married him anyway. And then the boy found the blood. Andy Jones was their neighbor, he was 11, and he did chores now and then for Zona and her husband, Erasmus Shue, who people called Trout. And on this day in January the next year, three months after the wedding, Andy's job was to check up on Zona while Trout was at work down the road at the blacksmith shop. She had been under the weather. Andy cuts across the bare winter grass and pushes through the white gate, walks up the front porch and there is blood. A small red pool soaking into the boards. He knocks. He waits and knocks again and then opens the door. There is more blood. Drops on the floorboards. The trail. He follows into the house. Through the dark living room. The kitchen. Flat January light. And stops at the dining room door. It is closed. It isn't usually closed. We do not know how long he stands at the door, if he thinks about running, if he listens for movement or moaning, or if he could have heard either over the sounds of his breathing, the pounding in his ears. He opens the door, and there is Zona on the floor. Her eyes open. He shakes her. Her body is cold. Now he runs, home to his mother, and then to the blacksmith shop, to tell the poor woman's husband, standing there in the glow of the fire, that his wife is dead. And then he's running again, cold stinging his lungs, to the house of the doctor. When Dr. George Knapp arrives at the house of Zona and Trout Shoe, the body is not on the dining room floor like the boy had told him it would be. It has been moved upstairs. Zona is in the bed. She has been dressed formally, Strangely, her collar is buttoned, and a scarf is wrapped around her neck. And beside her, holding her corpse close, is her husband, the blacksmith. He says he can't leave her side. He hugs her head to his chest. He won't let it go. Won't let the country doctor get close. He is too distraught. The doctor doesn't insist. 
The doctor will later say that he had seen Zona recently because she was pregnant, and he assumed she had died from some unknown complications of that pregnancy. But as he leaves that day, he tells people that her heart just stopped. He notes her cause of death as an everlasting faint. Her body is borne up and over a mountain to her parents' house. And while her mourning family sits in the living room around the open casket, Zona's corpse atop a white blanket as neighbors and friends came to pay their respects per the customs of their community. Trout's behavior is anything but customary. He vacillates between abject grief and manic agitation. He won't let people approach the coffin. He wedges a pillow beside her head, says he wants her to be comfortable. It doesn't make sense to anyone. They are all whispering that something's wrong. Why is she wearing the scarf? They had never seen her in it, and now our husband says it is her favorite thing, that she can't be without it. Even as they remove the sheet from the casket to prepare for her burial, he insists the scarf stays on. And some of them, later, will say that as they were closing the casket, they saw something strange, something odd in the way that her head moved as her weight shifted, like there was something wrong with her neck. They held their tongues as she was put into the frozen ground, but it was all they could talk about on the way home. There was something wrong here. Having buried her daughter, Mary Jane Heaster took on the task of cleaning the white sheet upon which her girl had lain. There was a smell to it. She wanted to make the smell go away. And as she washed it, the water in the basin turned pink. There was a faded red stain in the sheet. It wouldn't go away. She boiled it. She put it out in the clothesline where it hung stiff and frozen for days. All while this feeling grew inside her. It was the same one she'd had since this man had first come to town. Brash and cocky. Bullying. And came for her daughter. That's the way it felt, like he had targeted her and he had taken her. She had been sick with worry and now it had come to this. He had killed Zona. She knew it. He killed her. There is a historical marker just off Route 60 in Smoot, West Virginia, a ways down from the Shell Station. It notes the location of the cemetery in which the Greenbrier Ghost is buried. This story is about a ghost, but it is not a ghost story. And not because I don't believe in ghosts, though I do not. I believe when one dies, one remains dead. I believe that hauntings are things that occur in the minds of the living. This isn't a ghost story, because in a ghost story, the ghosts pass through walls. They have no bearing on the material world. But that isn't this story. Zona Shu appeared to her mother on four consecutive nights in the winter of 1897. She had been dead for a week. On the first night, Mary Jane Heaster woke suddenly to see her daughter standing by her bedside in the dress she had worn on the day she died. She seemed perfectly real. She wasn't a misty apparition, but appeared to be flesh and blood and bone. But as Mary Jane reached out to touch her, her daughter vanished. Zona never said a word. But on each of the next three nights, she stayed and talked and told her mother about her murder. The ghost spoke at length and in detail about the physical and emotional abuse she'd suffered in her brief life with her husband. And one day, the day the boy walked up the stairs and found Zona's blood on the porch, her husband went too far. He flew into a rage. He wanted meat for his dinner and she said she didn't have any. 
There was butter and bread and preserves and plenty for a decent meal. But he snapped, and he choked her and grabbed her head and broke her neck. She proved this to her mother by turning her head all the way around. Mary Jane told everyone she knew. And by the time she told the local prosecutor, he was already thinking about digging the body up. People had been talking nonstop about Trout's shoe and his strange behavior, and the peculiar way his poor wife's head had shifted when they moved the coffin. They said it almost seemed loose on her body. He went to the doctor, who described what he'd seen at the shoe house, how Mr. Shoe was uncooperative, how he never really examined her, and this was enough for the prosecutor. So they exhumed the corpse and performed an autopsy. And everything that Mary Jane had claimed the ghost of Zona had told her appeared to be true. Her windpipe had been crushed, consistent with the claim of strangulation, and her neck had been broken. Trout Chu was charged with first-degree murder. He was defiant from the moment of his arrest, said there was no way they could prove he did it, which implied that there was an it that had been done, a murder committed. And while he waited for trial, he said a lot more. Newspaper reporters kept coming to him for comment on stories they'd heard about him in other parts of the state, that he had been married before, that a mob had once broken into his home, dragged him into the snow, cracked a hole in a frozen lake, and threw him in it to punish him for whipping his wife. That wife ran away. And when Trout was later arrested for stealing a horse, she returned long enough to divorce him while he was in prison. There was a second wife, too. She was young like Zona, and she died like Zona. Trout's story was that they were repairing a chimney and a brick had fallen on her head, but no one believed him, yet there was nothing the police could do. When he was confronted with these stories, Trout joked that he was hoping to be married seven times in his life, and he was still only 35, so he had plenty of time for more wives. He entered the courtroom certain of his acquittal. He sat for eight days as people condemned his character and gave testimony about his strange behavior. But the evidence was purely circumstantial. And then Zona's mother took the stand. The prosecutor steered clear of questions about the ghostly visitations. Even if he personally accepted that they were real, they were hearsay and weren't admissible. But on cross-examination, the defense asked her about the ghost. They wanted to hear from the crazy mother. They thought it would help their client's case to let the bereaved mother, this unstable, fragile woman, melt down. Who would take the word of a woman like that? They would let her ramble. But she didn't ramble or break down. She told a story of persistent abuse and murderous rage, and her details never wavered. She never contradicted herself. She gave detailed descriptions of injuries that were the same ones found in the autopsy. It was as though the victim were in the room, speaking for herself. And because the testimony was solicited by the defense and wasn't introduced by the prosecution, the judge said he couldn't instruct the jury to ignore it, and Trout Chu was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison. That life in prison turned out to be short. He was dead just three years later. We do not know what killed him. His ghost never told anyone. I do not believe that Elva Zona Heaster Shoe appeared to her mother. I do not believe in ghosts. But this isn't a ghost story. 
because ghosts and ghost stories have no bearing on the material world. But this one did. Her mother may have believed that she was visited by her daughter's ghost, even if I do not. Maybe she dreamt it, maybe in her grief she experienced some hallucination or delusion. Maybe her brain filled in gaps in her perception of reality during a time in which her sense of reality seemed to fray. Or maybe she made it up, took what she knew by feeling it, by knowing her daughter. Or maybe she did know things. Maybe she had talked to her daughter about her abuse. Maybe he had come close to killing her before. And maybe she knew, her mother, that at that time, in that world, knowing about that abuse wouldn't have changed anything. Wouldn't have stopped it from happening. And maybe a mother talking about her suspicions on the stand or even things that her daughter had told her directly would have been dismissed as hysterical, as delusional. There are no ghosts, but there are monsters. And there is a ghost story that trapped one behind walls that he couldn't pass through. This episode of The Memory Palace was written and produced by me, Nate DeMeo, in October of 2022. This show gets research assistance from Eliza McGraw. It is a proud member of Radiotopia, a network of independently owned and operated listener-supported shows from PRX, a not-for-profit public media company. If you want to know more about the network and its wonderful family podcast, go to radiotopia.fm. If you want to follow this one on social media, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at The Memory Palace. And if you want to shoot me an email... You are always welcome to do so at nate at thememorypalace.org. I will talk to you again. Radiotopia.